Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. There are a lot of people who go through life calling themselves Christian, but in reality they're living a practical atheism. That is to say that they have formulated their view of life and of the future, primarily, if not in the majority, from the world around them, from the maybe the mass media, maybe a secular education, maybe just popular notions that arise in culture. And they may dress those beliefs up in Christian terminology, but at their heart, their worldview, their belief system, all that they set their hope on and all that they treasure is dictated by what they see and what they hear in the world. Despite the clear command from God to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, they allow their minds to be shaped more by the society around them than they do by the renewal of Scripture. Well, this was apparently true in Corinth as as much as it is today. You remember he, Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians and he begins this with a couple of chapters contrasting two ways of wisdom, the way of the world and the way of God. And he outlines how incongruent those two are over and over again, and how to embrace the wisdom of God means, uh, in believing the gospel, to often be labeled a fool in the eyes of the world. To embrace what the Bible teaches is to be labeled in... in uh, in uh, unintellectual, excuse me, un- unintellectual, naive, and maybe, and maybe backward. First Corinthians three, you remember, verse eighteen: Let no one be de- deceived. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool, so that he may be wise. In other words, Paul says, "Look, if you want to have true wisdom, the one pathway to get there." is to be willing to accept on yourself the label, the moniker of foolishness. Or even says of himself in chapter 4, verse 9, he and the other apostles, he says, have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We, he says in verse 10, are fools for Christ's sake. We are weak. We are in disrepute. So he's saying, look, For us, as even the apostles, even the founders of this newfound faith, we are ourselves labeled by all who know us as fools for Christ's sake, as disreputable, as weak-minded to all who know us. So to accept the word of the cross of Jesus Christ is to be labeled all of these things because the wisdom of God is foolishness. And Paul has uh, outlined why that is. He basically gives us the primary reasons for that. First of all, because what we know from the wisdom of God is not discovered by natural processes. That is to say, the gospel of Christ isn't something that can be observed or arrived at by logical deduction. It isn't something that we come at the way we do all other things we know in this life. It comes to us only by supernatural revelation, or that is, it comes to us only by the Word of God. And so it isn't arrived at by natural processes. And secondly, it isn't validated by them. That is to say that that even if you didn't arrive at these truths, and, and even if you heard them only by the preaching of the Word of God, still... Many people reject them because it doesn't line up with what they personally experience. It doesn't line up with the way that they have categorized the world, the way they have constructed their own system of beliefs. It doesn't uh, line up with what they personally believe is the measure of truth. That is to say that they have made themselves the arbiter ultimately of what is true and not God's word. Now you could just take that understanding and understand now 
why so many people may reject the fact that when the scripture says we're all born sinners and under the wrath of God, they would reject it because they've never personally seen anyone stand before a judgment seat of Christ. You may understand why they would reject that forgiveness comes only through Jesus Christ because they see so many other people espousing pathways to God and they can't imagine that they would all be wrong. You may understand why they would reject that forgiveness, if it's to be sought after at all, is only to be found by the mercy of Christ because they imagine that somehow all of their good deeds must account for something before God. Or you may understand why so many would struggle with some of the core foundational tenets of Christianity, such as the idea of a bodily resurrected Savior. Now this was apparently one which was a particular sticking point here in Corinth. Many apparently had come into the church accepting obviously that God existed and accepting seemingly that Christ had come to provide forgiveness of sins. But in many other ways they had constructed a Christianity that looked and sounded and believed just like all of the world around them and not like the scripture. They had a whole uh, idea of an afterlife that had no notion of a physical resurrection of the body and a material restoration of the earth and of the world. Like so many who had who had come before them, so many who were around them, they felt like they knew better than to believe in the silly myths of resurrection. Because obviously, they knew many people who had died. They had watched many bodies decay or be consumed by fire. And they had never seen a single one of them come back. It's almost universally accepted belief today that this is the end. That if there's anything beyond the grave, that it is unknowable and even if it is there, it is necessarily immaterial. Because man can't accept the fact that there would be a material bodily resurrection if he cannot prove it. And people sometimes believe that Maybe the ancients, maybe those from the first century or maybe those from past centuries believe this because they were understandably poor people, maybe from the first century who had primitive views of life as if somehow 2,000 years ago, people saw resurrections all the time, right? As if they were always seeing people come back from the grave and so somehow they would be more ready to accept these beliefs than you and I would. Well, the reality is it's always been ludicrous. It's always been looked at as naive. It's always been looked at with scorn and ridicule for anybody to believe that life after death would ever involve the physical resurrection of our bodies. You remember Paul stood before philosophers on the Areopagus in Acts 17 And he preached the resurrection. And they mocked him. And they ridiculed him. And called him a babbler of strange things. I mean, this was the worldview of the day. They they looked at life, first of all, as having no uh, uh, hope beyond the grave at all. One tombstone uh, unearthed found uh, this inscription on it. It said simply, I was not... I was, I am not, I'm free from all wishes. In other words, this was their their worldview, the worldview of so many today, that the best that you have, you're born to this world, you live for all that it's worth, and then when you die, you completely pass out of existence. Cebes, in his dialogue with Socrates on the immortality of the soul, he uh, even states that most people in his day believed That when the soul leaves the body, it no longer exists anywhere 
And on the day when man dies, it is destroyed and perishes. Now, that may have been even the dominant view of the day. I mean, the whole notion of an afterlife itself was rejected by so many in Greek society as Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians. Or if they did believe in an afterlife, whatever they believed in didn't involve any sort of resurrection. It was, at best, some sort of angelic or ghostly or spiritual existence where you just sort of floated among the stars somewhere in an immaterial world. Plutarch, for example, speaks of the afterlife, and he says that many such fables are told by writers who improbably ascribe divinity to the mortal features in human nature as well as to the divine. At any rate, he says, to reject entirely the divine of human virtue were impious and base, but to mix heaven and earth is foolish. Let us therefore take the safe course and grant with Pindar that our bodies all must follow death's supreme behest. But something living still survives, an image of life, for this comes, uh, for this alone comes from the gods. Yes, it comes from them, and to them it returns, not with its body, but only when it is most completely separated, set free from the body, and becomes altogether pure, fleshless, and undefiled. For a dry soul is best, according to Heraclitus, and it flies from the body as lightning flashes from a cloud. This was Greek philosophy, that if there was any afterlife, the only way for it to ever be meaningful, the only way for it to ever be pure, the only way for it to ever be undefiled, is for it to be somehow separated from the material world that we know. That the things that you touch and the things that you see and the things that you experience in this life are necessarily defiled, necessarily impure, and if you're going to ever have hope of purity, you must have a world that is immaterial at best. Well, against all of this, against all of this comes the teaching of Scripture, which teaches us, as we said in the past, that God created this world to be good. He created it, and it was good. And he created it with the purpose of fulfilling good deeds and good work in good bodies. And so we understand from the biblical worldview that you can't reject the resurrection. You can't reject the resurrection because it's a part of God's plan, because it's clearly demonstrated, and because there's nothing uh, impure about it. But we understand specifically from this chapter that it isn't just that, it isn't just rejecting a part of God's plan. To reject the resurrection, to imbibe a worldview and a, a view of the afterlife that might be maybe congruent with some of the higher ideals of society around you, to imbibe something that might be acceptable to popular culture around you, to to. to to accept all of that may win you some acceptance as sophisticated, but it will absolutely undermine your whole standing as a Christian. Because the resurrection isn't just about a future hope for a future world. It's about the gospel. It's about the very core of what we believe. And this is what Paul has really been laying out for us here. He has been trying to help these Corinthians who were wanting to move away from the idea of any sort of material world, material restoration with a material body. They were wanting to deny all of that. He's trying to help them to understand that you cannot deny that without denying the very foundation of your faith. You'll hear it come out in verse 12 when Paul says to them, Now, if Christ is proclaimed to you as raised from the dead, how come some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So here he ties these two things together. He's already been laying out for us that denying the resurrection of the body 
than embracing the popular beliefs that might be out there about the afterlife. You can't do any of that, he says, without denying the fundamental core tenet of Christianity, which is the resurrection of Christ's body. This is the clear affirmation. You read the Gospels, every one of them, end with with testimony of multiple witnesses of, of Christ and His resurrection. You read through the book of Acts over and over and over again. You read about uh, 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 sermons that were given pointing continually to the resurrection of Christ. Day, uh, excuse me, uh, 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 Peter on the day of Pentecost preaches in Acts 2.31 that David prophesied the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, but this Jesus, he says, God raised up from the dead. And over and over again, we see it throughout the, 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 the entire book, the apostles pointing to the resurrection as the validating marker of their message. Paul's already laid this out for us here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. To reject this is then to reject the gospel itself. It's to reject the scriptures. It is to reject the apostles. It is to reject everything the early church preached. And he wants to really expand on that in these verses, particularly going down from verse 19. And so in verse 14, he's going to launch here into these consequences if you reject the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Christ. And what he's basically telling us is if you do that, the dominoes begin to fall. You knock down that one tenet of Christianity and the dominoes just begin to fall. You reject the resurrected body of Christ. You reject the resurrection in general, I should say, then the resurrected body of Christ is not reality. In verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, four tragic consequences come about. First of all, He says there's no credibility any longer for the apostles. What does he say in verse 14? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. He's saying, look, this this is a... This is the first thing that's going to happen here. Is that if you reject the resurrection of Christ, if you really, excuse me, reject, reject the resurrection of bodies, then you're fundamentally res, uh, rejecting the resurrection of Christ. And if you reject the resurrection of Christ, then what you're saying that is, is that the apostles, who are the foundation stones of the church, are fundamentally misrepresenting the gospel itself. You read through the book of Acts and and what you find is that these men over and over and over again pointed to the resurrection as the central validating act for or central validating event, I should say, for all of their preaching. For example, Paul preaching there in in Athens, in Acts 17, he says that God proclaimed, uh, or excuse me, he proclaimed that God would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has appointed. And of that judgment, Paul says, he has furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So when Paul wanted to talk about judgment, when he wanted to talk about sin, when he wanted to talk about salvation, when he wanted to talk about anything related to the gospel, he would point back, as all the other apostles did, to the validating fact of all of those truths, which is the raising of Christ from the dead. Say then the resurrection doesn't happen is to say that that resurrection didn't happen, and to say that resurrection didn't happen is to make them all liars. Or as he says in verse 15, to make them testifying 
against God, saying that he did that which in fact he did not do. It's to make them all, all promoters of falsehood. And you understand that because they testified not only to the resurrection, but because they gave testimony to have all seen the resurrected Christ at the same time would imply that there was a well-coordinated, premeditated attempt at collusion to, to convince a world of a falsehood of magnanimous portion. In other words, it was willful deception. It wasn't just the it wasn't just the vain hopes of wishful thinking. This was premeditated lack of moral consciousness. And these are the very men on whom the church is founded. They said, "Well, I thought the church is founded on Jesus Christ." Well, it's founded on Christ in the sense that the apostles are founded on him. But do you understand that there's not a single book that was ever written by Jesus Christ. Not a single not a single thing ever put in print by his hand that comes down to us. It was God's wisdom that everything that we know and believe comes to us by the testimony of the apostles. It was they who gave testimony to his life. It was they who gave testimony to his death. And it was they who gave testimony to his resurrection. And conveyed it to us in the writings of the New Testament. And so for you to undermine their credibility. Or to reject the resurrection I say is to undermine their credibility. And is to undermine the whole foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles themselves. Acts 2.42 says from the very beginning of the church, everyone devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Rejecting the resurrection then is to say nothing more than to say that we have given our heart and our mind and our faith into the hands of liars. And it is to undermine your, your whole belief system. Secondly, Paul says denying the resurrection of Christ not only undermines their credibility, but it undermines forgiveness of sins. Verse 16, if, Christ, if the dead are not raised, he's basically repeating once again the, the same premise. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your Faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, then death still reigns. If death still reigns, then sin is undefeated. Because death is the primary result of sin, or, or the primary evidence of sin in our life. God created a world without death, and He told Adam and Eve in the day that they sinned that they would surely die. That death was the most immediate consequence in this life of sin. Its ultimate consequence, obviously, is separation from God, but its most immediate consequence is death. And so Paul says, if death still happens, if death still is active, if death is still dominant, then sin still remains. And you are still in it. And your faith is futile. This is the unmistakably clear message of this chapter. In fact, if you have your Bibles, go over to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4, at the end of that chapter. Because Paul lays this out in one of the clearest statements on the centrality of the resurrection that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. He says, back in verse 22, speaking about the faith of Abraham, the faith of really all of those who passed before the time of Christ, all the Old Testament saints, but particularly of Abraham, he says, he says that his faith was counted to him as righteousness, 
And he asks this question in verse 22. Why? Uh, he says, I'm sorry, he makes a statement. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. It's a lot of theology in those few verses, but I want to draw your attention just to that final verse in verse 25. And I want you to pay attention to how Paul closely connects the resurrection of Christ to your justification. Because essentially, if you had nothing more than a Savior who died on a cross with a sacrificial death, then you have nothing more than a grand moral example, nothing more than one of the greatest demonstrations of love ever given, nothing more than a wonderful story to tell of a great hero of the faith, nothing more than the the story of a man who put his hope in God. You have nothing more than an end of a story of a tragic death that is nothing better than a great example to you, but it has no redemptive value. It has no redemptive value. Because it has not demonstrated in any way that death has been defeated. It hasn't demonstrated in any way that death has been defeated. Because honestly, you could take any old sinner and and put them in that same place on the cross. And it may still be some glorious story of sacrifice, but it would do it would do still the same for you, which is nothing. In order for this sacrifice to really be effectual, in order for it to really be of any good, it must defeat sin. And if it defeats sin, then it necessarily defeats death. And this is why Paul, in this verse, connects these two ideas together. That Jesus Christ was delivered up, that is to say, He was put on the cross as a substitute for your transgressions, as a stand-in for your place under the wrath of God, To say that God has intended His wrath for all mankind, for all eternity, unless perhaps there was a Savior who could stand in their place and take the wrath for you, which is exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. But as a demonstration that 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 wrath was sufficient, there is the defeat of death that comes three days later. The demonstration that sin is indeed, or has indeed, been decisively dealt with. Or back up there in Romans, over to chapter 1, and I'll show it to you in another place. Romans 1.4. When Paul says that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. He's saying that Jesus was declared, He was demonstrated, He was made plain to be God's Son by this resurrection. You say, well, how's that? Because for the same reason, you take any other person who's ever lived and you put them on the cross and they die no matter how noble that death may be and they do not rise from the dead, It is a clear demonstration that they themselves have been defeated by their own sin. But then you take someone who has no sin. You take someone who can't be defeated by sin because they have no sin. And you kill them on the cross. And they cannot be defeated by death. Because they have not been defeated by sin. And what you have then is a clear declaration that this man is different. 
that this man is something different. He's declared to be the son of God. He's declared to, to, to have died a death like no one else died. And raised from the dead like no one else could. And all providing a salvation that only he could bring. So this is Paul's point. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, then what you have is the evidence of just simply some other ordinary man who has died a death that sin brings to all of us. But it's his resurrection that demonstrates to us that he's different. He's different. He's been raised. Your faith is not futile. And you're not in your sins. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we're like a navy who's putting their greatest hope on a sunken battleship. If Christ hasn't been raised, then we're like a bunch of children uh, playing tea, pouring empty teapots into empty cups and eating delicacies off of empty plates. In other words, we're believing lies built upon lies that can provide nothing for our faith. But if this man truly 2,000 years ago was raised from the dead, then he has clearly demonstrated that death has been defeated. And if death has been defeated, then he's demonstrated that sin itself has been defeated. He's demonstrated that the gospel is true. Paul adds a couple more implications of this, if consequences, if you will, of those who deny the resurrection. Not only would they undermine the credibility of the apostles, not only would they undo all of the work of forgiveness that's bound up in the gospel, but he says, thirdly, that they have undermined the whole, the whole belief or the whole hope and salvation for lost loved ones. And this must have been an issue for the Corinthians because Paul seems to arise or seems to bring it out of nowhere. He says in verse 18 that if you deny the resurrection, then those who've fallen asleep in Christ, they too have perished. In other words, this isn't just some sort of academic discussion about what our afterlife is like, whether it's bodily or spiritual. This is a discussion about whether or not we experience salvation at all, and therefore whether or not those who have gone before us, those who've already died in Christ, died believing a lie, died with no salvation, and therefore have no opportunity of ever discovering the truth. They, they died trusting a Savior who could not defeat sin because he could not defeat death in himself. If the resurrection were false, they're still in their sins. They're still in their sins. They've perished. Fourthly, he says, not only that, you undermine the whole notion of your own future hope. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We're of all people most to be pitied. That's because the Christian life, the Christian life is a life or ought to be a life that is essentially oriented towards another. It's oriented towards another. Or to put it in the words of Paul in Philippians 3, that our citizenship is in heaven from whom we await a Savior, he says, who will transform our bodies into the image of His glorious body so that we will be together forever with Him. So he says, in light of this hope, this coming glorious transformation of our bodies, we therefore live our lives not as citizens of this world, not as primarily inhabitants of this life, not with the goals and not with the aspirations and not with the possessions and not with the 
securities of this life, but we live our life with a citizenship, with an understanding, with a presence in another world. And this becomes our primary motivation for everything that we do. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, he ends the entire chapter, you remember, in verse 58, with that statement, that that grand statement of motivation. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, after everything else that he said about resurrection, he can come with this word of motivation. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, if you are a believer or claim to be a believer who somehow thinks that the resurrection doesn't exist, you undermine you undermine at the very core the gospel of Christ's resurrection. You undermine your hope in a future life, you undermine your primary motivation for living out the Christian life as it's supposed to be lived. Or you can go back to chapter, uh, here in chapter 15, go back to verse 31. This is the way Paul says it. Because he speaks here about his own life and his own sacrifice. He says in verse 31, I protest, my brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, look, the Christian life involves sacrifice. He's saying to them, I die daily. Because he understands that the greatest pursuits, he understands that the greatest callings in our life, he understands that conformity with Christ isn't somehow coasting through life from one blessing to the next. He understands that the Christian life in all of its pursuits involves not only sacrifice, but it involves discipline from the Lord It involves trials, it involves temptations, it involves sometimes heartaches, and it involves pain. And he says, look, I die daily. That's a part of my regular existence. And I do that, he's saying, because I understand that this isn't all that there is. The reason, in other words, why I would take things that I might normally spend on myself and expend them on others, the reason why I would take time that I might normally expend on myself and expend it on others, the reason why I would take uh, uh, the, the brunt of criticism and not return evil for evil, the reason why I would do all of these things over and over and over again is because I fundamentally understand that this life isn't all there is. Sounds very much like what he says over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he talks about his, his life there, he says in verse 7, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that belongs to God and not of us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. Now grab hold of what he's saying here. He's saying we carry out or we we go through life every day experiencing the death of Jesus Christ so that the life of Christ might be manifested in us. In other words, as you go through life and you're making all of these sacrifices and you're doing all these things, if you think or you imagine that Christianity is all about manipulating responses to the people around you and the circumstances around you, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Come and you meet people sometimes and you begin to talk to them about the gospel and about what God demands of them in the context of their situation. If they're a child 
they may begin to imagine, yeah, well, maybe if I, if I act this certain way, then my parents will treat me this way. Or maybe if I'm a wife and I do a certain thing, my husband will straighten up and he will act better. Or maybe if I'm a husband and I do a certain thing, my wife will respond differently to me. Or, and so many people put this through the grid of manipulation in their own minds and begin to imagine that the reason why we do the things we do is because of the favorable responses that we receive in return. Paul says, that's not why we do it. And if that's why you do it, you're going to run into a roadblock. And you're never really going to understand Christ. Because the reason we do these things, Paul says, the reason why we die to ourselves every day is for this reason. So that Christ can be formed in us. So that we can understand just a little bit of the kind of sacrifice that he made. So we can understand in the smallest way what it means to give, to return good for evil, and to understand that, that even when we, we do that, people don't change. They may still crucify you the way they crucified him, even though he was innocent of all wrong concerning them. Paul goes on here and in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, he says, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always given over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what was written, I believe, so I spoke, we also believe, and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as the grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul, in other words, says, I'm not living for personal benefit. I'm not making all these sacrifices because it necessarily brings life, uh, excuse me, prosperity in my life. You may hear that on a TV show somewhere. You might read that in a book. You might hear that message of Christianity that if you do all of these things, that somehow it's going to result in all kinds of prosperity and all kinds of good feelings in your life. And Paul says, That's not why I do it. I do it so that the glory of God might advance in the lives of other people. And then he adds this very compelling end to that chapter. He says, so then we don't lose heart. Though our outer man is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are transient, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let me tell you, if you don't have that vision of an eternal weight of glory, I don't believe that you can be committed to the glory of God in your life. You can only be committed to your own good. If you don't don't meditate regularly, if you don't let it sink deep down into your bones regularly about a a weighty eternal glory, about unseen things, about things that await you whenever... He who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead. If you don't spend time meditating on that, then what you're going to see are the things in this life as weighty, the things in this life as what you need to pursue, and the things that result in your own blessing and your own glory and your own satisfaction as that which is paramount. Or you can go over to Romans. He says it in another way in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is the way he defines Christians. He says, I consider, verse 18 of Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time 
are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So catch what he's saying here. He's saying that this isn't just about us. He's saying all of creation is awaiting a day, not when it's going to be wiped away and dissolved into nothingness and the rest of eternity is spent in just some sort of spiritual or ethereal existence. He's saying that creation is awaiting its own release from futility And that'll come about, he says, when the sons of God are revealed. He goes on in verse 22. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Let me tell you something. If you don't have that groaning... If you don't have that inner groaning, then you have gotten your eyes too focused on what is seen and not focused enough on what is not seen. That you will not be prepared to be abounding and immovable and always about the labor of the Lord. What you'll be about is your own labor. What you'll be about is your own kingdom. What you'll be about is your own glory. And what's really sad is Paul says, that's a pitiable place to be. If all the hope you have is this life, that's pitiable. Because what's in this life doesn't compare to the life to come. And you're either in one of two places. You're either either in a life living for the meager crumbs that come between your birth and your death. Or you're living a life of pursuit of God, which is demanding sacrifice, which is demanding crucifixion of yourself, because you're living for an eternal weight of glory. Either way, if the resurrection isn't there, it's a sad state. If this miserable life and all the, all the, all the heartache and all the pain and all the grief and all the hurt and all the disappointment, if that's all there is, that's a sad state. And if we've been found to be liars, because there's no resurrection of the dead, then we're all pitiable. Now, the good news is that we're not, right? The good news is that we're not, because there was a man who wasn't defeated by death, because he wasn't defeated by sin. He rose from the grave to demonstrate that he was God's son. He rose from the grave to demonstrate that he had defeated sin. He rose from the grave to demonstrate that he had provided a sacrifice which can wipe away all of our sins. Can usher us into God's presence forever. Not just in God's presence, but into redeemed bodies like his. Living with the Lord and serving him all of our days. Listen, folks, it's that it's that vision which transforms everything else you do in this life. And make no mistake about it. We who are believers, you you look into someone's life and you see some genuine transformation in their life and you look into their home and you look into their family and you look into their marriage, you look into their job or whatever it might be. And what you see is you see joy and you see fulfillment and you see purpose and you see all of these things. You see enrichment and you imagine that somehow they have just sort of lucked out in life and somehow they got sort of lucky in the lottery of life and they're just living well and living high or whatever it might be. And you don't realize that what they're doing and what they're 
what they're seeing is through all of those things to an eternal weight of glory, which fills all of their life with purpose so that they can pour into their children and into their spouses and into their job a level of sacrifice which is motivated by eternity and then, and then provides meaning for everything that they do here and provides joy and abundance and richness and all of that. But it doesn't come from this life alone. And it doesn't come from the blessings of this life alone. It comes because they're citizens of another world. It comes because they're groaning. They might be laughing on the, uh, on the outside. But inside there's that yearning for the day they stand before Christ. And their reward is complete. They're living for another world. The good news is you can too. God has brought you here this morning to hear a message about a resurrection, but a message about a man who rose from the dead, one who wasn't defeated by death, one who demonstrated the power that he not only can defeat death, he can defeat sin, and one who demonstrated the power that he can change your heart. If you'll accept him, if you'll repent, You'll confess your sins. You'll take up your cross and follow him. He will flood into your life. All the joys and the glories of life to come. And the hope of the resurrection. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we understand that according to your great mercy, you've caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And indeed, in this, we greatly rejoice. Though now we do not see him, yet believing, we exult with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Never were truer words spoken and never could we express all the richness of that joy nor have we exhausted it. Father, I pray that you would make us a people whose eyes are on eternity, whose hope is on the resurrection, whose glory is in our Savior. And whose purpose is to live for him. I pray for those who are still here. Walking in the pitiable. Misery. Of hope only in this life. They go from one. Disappointment to another. They go from one vain hope to another. They go from one. Empty pursuit. To another. Or would you fill them with faith. You fill them with believing. Would you fill their life with purpose? The purpose of your namesake and glory. The hope of the resurrection. Belief in the Savior. And Lord, may it all resound to your name and your glory being exalted in every corner of creation. We pray in Christ's name.